I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 28th, 2016. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Ohio State's overtime win over Michigan, the drama therein, and the joy and sadness of college football rivalries. We'll also talk about U.S. soccer's decision to dump Jurgen Klinsmann and to replace him with Bruce Arena, the coach who led the U.S. team at the 2002 and 2006 World Cups, and Oliver Rader of 538 will join us to discuss the World Chess Championship match between Norway's Magnus Carlsen and Russia's Sergei Karyakin. Joining me is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Joining you in Washington. All right. Are we hiding our location? <laughs> We're in a secret location, the Slate Bunker. I kind of tweak these every week, and sometimes I forget to add back in the standard at I had written, congratulations on not missing an extra point on Sunday, Stefan. Thank you. Should I just say that every week? Yeah. Still didn't miss an extra point. Still perfect. Joining us, as always, from New York is Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Hello. Congratulate me on holding everyone on the offensive line to get a safety to run out the clock. <laughs> so I don't know if that's whimsy. You guys were tossing around some... I feel like the definition of, of whimsy is always... Loose and flexible mm-hmm. in a yeah. in a fun and happy way, but yeah, it's a whimsical definition. It would be weird to have a staunch whimsy definition, yeah. <laughs> but it can get stretched to just mean things that happen that I enjoy, mm-hmm. which I feel which is I, okay. I, you have a problem with that? <laughs> I do. That looked like something out of the Marx Brothers football <laughs> movie. That was awesome. That was whimsical. It depends uh, on the scoring. If you use enter correct, the I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. If you use uh, Spike Jones, yeah, but bum, 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 then then it's uh, sad. 
So whimsy was the Bears wide receiver dropping the ball and then kicking it and then having the kicked ball go directly into a security guard's butt. Mm-hmm. That's whimsy. There's no debating it. That's a pure 10.0. The East Germans think that's whimsy. This other stuff, it's up to your individual perception. Um, the the thing that I thought was funny about uh, that Ravens holding play is that according to the rules, there's nothing the refs can do about it. You've just got to allow them to do it, except if the refs decided it was a palpably unfair act. Yeah. At which point all of everything, all bets are off. You can just – you know, do whatever you want as a referee. But I love the use of the modifier palpably. Mm-hmm. See, to me, the palpably that's unfair wh- That's act. a whim- whimsical modifier. <laughs> it's a whim. Many adverbs are. Um, to me, the palpably unfair act has got to be the uh, the needle that every referee drives the camel through. Wait, huh? What I'm saying is the equivalent <laughs> of best interests of the game. That's what palpably unfair act is. And that's the only way to redress all these crazy penalties. And if someone hadn't seen the game, the Ravens were up by a touchdown. It was one play left in the game. They were to punt to the Bengals, not wanting to do that. Their offensive line uh, in a punt formation held everyone and the Ravens took a safety. And the reason the reason why they held was so that, you know, nothing bad would happen, I guess, uh, while the 15 seconds uh, got expended by the taking of the safety. But the rules do not allow for an extra play after that penalty is called. So they knew that they could uh, get away scot-free. So this is a good transition in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members today. We're going to talk about a high school football game in Illinois where the refs made a mistake. And it was the mistake was basically misapplying the rule that Mike just described, that they gave an extra down at the end of the game when they shouldn't have given it. And the losing team took that ruling to court. We will discuss this in our bonus segment. There has never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus. For Slate's 20th anniversary, for a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before the offer goes away at slate.com slash hangupplus. I would be remiss if I didn't note that there was a 14-5 to game on Sunday. 14-5 to is only the second in NFL history. It's the five. When I, when I, the it's the five. Point. When that five yeah. popped up on the board, I got very, very excited, Mike. I went right to pro football reference. Yeah. This is also the season where scores come up and you're like, oh my God, Duke has 68. And then you realize it's a basketball game, except I was watching, uh, <laughs> a class, I was watching that classic Big East basketball game from uh, 1987 where Pitt beat Syracuse 76 to 61. And then I thought to myself, my God, how did they hold Billy Owens to the few points, the Pitt Panthers. And it wasn't a basketball game. It was a football game. On Saturday in Columbus, Ohio, number two, Ohio State beat its rival, number three, Michigan, 30 to 27 in double overtime. The win basically locks up a spot in college football's four-team playoff for Ohio State, which is now 11 and one. And it probably means the 10 and two Michigan will get left out. In the second overtime, Ohio State quarterback JT Barrett barely got a first down when he ran the ball into the line on fourth and one. And if you're a Michigan fan, you probably think he didn't get it and your team got screwed. And if you're Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh, then you definitely think he didn't get it and you definitely think your team got screwed. Here is Harbaugh ranting about the refs after the game. I'm bitterly disappointed with the officiating today. That spot, the, the graphic display is the interference penalties. 
The one not called on us, on Grant Perry, clearly was being hooked before the ball got there. And the, the previous penalty they called on Delano Hill, the ball is uncatchable and by the receiver. See, I'm bitterly disappointed in the officiating. Can't make that any more clear. Joining us now is our colleague and resident Michigan fan, Ben Mathis-Lilly, who is also bitterly disappointed about this game. Hello, Ben. Hi, guys. And we should bracket all this. So we're recording this on Monday morning, and there's an active shooter on the Ohio State campus. We don't really know um, the story is developing, but we can stipulate at the top uh, of the segment that we know how unimportant all of this is, and yet we can... Uh, we will still engage in the conversation because uh, there there's a lot of passion going on here, uh, especially on the Michigan message boards. Ben, tell us uh, what the experience has been like, uh, what it was like during the game, and then what kind of rabbit holes have been <laughs> have been gone down in the days since. Um, so, you know, I've come to expect, I've come to dread this game. So I think before the game, I was frightened. During the game, I was anxious. And after the game, I was obviously, you know, in, in the sports fan sense, devastated by the outcome, but uh, but not entirely surprised. I don't think there was at any actual point during the game in which I, I really expected to to win. And so when, when the end happened, I, you know, I, I've, I have uh, about 15 years of dealing with this, this kind of experience with the Ohio State game. That said, uh, yes, I'm completely on the bandwagon of people who think JT Barrett did not make the first down. I have looked at a lot of the screenshots and, uh, in fact, uh, read up on the um, the links that are being sent around about the head referee in the Michigan-Ohio State game actually having been dismissed in 2002 by the Big Ten for what was apparently a very very poor performance in a in a Purdue-Wake Forest game. Uh, so I'm, I'm about halfway down the rabbit hole, I would say. Is your all caps lock key fixed though? <laughs> uh, I've gotten, you know, as, for the hour after the game, I received and sent a lot of profanity filled text <laughs> messages using words such as disillusioned, despondent, and devastated. I you also say, tweeted yeah. people being all lol at the people who are mad about the fourth and one because it wasn't their team can eat a shit sandwich in hell. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I did, and, and that was this person. There's a particular kind of reaction, and I'm sure I've 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 taken part in it when I was not one of the interested parties before. When there's one of these kind of calls, and you just and and uh, and the reaction of some people is just to kind of laugh and shrug your shoulders and say, "Well, you know, who knows what what the what the you know what actually happened?" And isn't it silly that people are taking it so seriously? And and my response to that is like, "Well, this is the biggest game. I mean, if you're if a fan of these teams, like." You know, you take it seriously. You did it, sports. I we all recognize that. Uh, but you know, why not? I mean, why why not look at uh, screenshots to try to figure out if he made the if he made the first down or not? You know, like just you know, give us this time. Give us this time to uh, get through uh, the process. I guess. So, what did you two guys think about the first down? Let's go with that one. That's uh, video forensics that anyone can have an opinion on. I thought in real time, it looked like he probably made it. And I thought having watched many of these football games and listened to all of the analysts tell us over and over again that there has to be clear evidence to overturn <laughs> a call, that, that there is clear and compelling. There is never <laughs> there was absolutely no way that the mm-hmm. call was gonna get overturned if it wasn't 
called, uh, you know, short of the first down originally. So it didn't even strike me that anything like super controversial yeah. happened. I- obviously, it was an extremely close play. And obviously, there's no way that they're going to precisely get the spot right. Like that's one of the great hilarious fictions of football is that you have a guy like run in and just place the ball down at random. But it seemed like they could have called it either way. And it, it didn't strike me as any sort of conspiracy either way. Yeah, and there was also no good camera angle to determine whether he crossed. It was right at the 15-yard line, so it was something where you could actually look at if you had a straight-on angle, but there was no straight-on It, did, it did make me think, though, that the next kind of innovation in college football after the first down line is Chip. why couldn't you have a camera down the line mm-hmm. because you know where the first down marker is every time, so why couldn't like you, you do at the end zone. have yeah. like a – why yeah, couldn't like you have, have a, a camera in the first down marker? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, the chains like might yeah. get tangled. Yeah, and a little orange dot on the top of the first down marker. So I looked at that and I thought that um, I agree with Josh. It seemed, of course, extremely close. I think perhaps uh, tricking our minds is that he di- he didn't end up with the first down. But let's remember that as for all the flaws of technology that we talked about, there is one guy with the perfect angle and he is standing right on the line and he is looking to see if at any point that ball in any way crosses the uh, imaginary first down marker and that was the referee. Now, Ben, you could talk about how this guy 14 years ago was dismissed. So anyway, I thought it was an extremely close call and of course, uh, partisans of one side via a lot of psychological phenomena that has been routinely, routinely studied. You know, this is actually a studied phenomenon that fans literally see things different ways. But I thought that was an extremely close call that went against Michigan. I thought the pass interference call where it was high and the Kirk Herb Street said the Michigan player didn't even need to commit the interference because that ball seemed to be by him. But still, again, a close call that I can understand why a Michigan fan is upset with. Yet, he did collide with a receiver who plausibly maybe could have made a play on the ball. You can't say it was totally uncatchable. And then the third Grand Perry interference is a call that Michigan didn't get that teams sometimes don't get. And it reminded me of that Super Bowl with Seattle against Pittsburgh, where there were a bunch of calls really close, and they all did go against Seattle. Yet I couldn't point to one or two that was like, that was egregious. So that's what I think was going on. They didn't get any close calls. I don't know if they should have, but if all these calls were like 55-45, the law of averages says, you know, give them one. Well, I think that the egregious part of the interference call was that it was the exact same action by the defender grabbing the right shoulder pad of the receiver and preventing his right arm from extending to try to get to the ball. And, you know, Harbaugh has a case. I think Michigan got jobbed. And I say that as a minor Michigan fan. Relatives in Michigan went to a bunch of games in the big house when I was a kid. But still, it did seem patently. He patently. Had a case. patently. He had a case to, to be pissed off. Yeah, if that gets called a penalty, the announcers don't say that's not a penalty. Yeah, I think that that was probably a penalty. But it's also the sort of very close play that often doesn't get called as a penalty. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the psych- you brought up the psychological, I mean, the, the, the psychological element to it. I mean, we, we, you've all probably also seen the study that said that, that if there is such a thing as home, home field advantage uh, happening for any specific reason, it's, it's, it's that the biggest contributor to it is that you just get more calls at home. Um, and, 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 and just to be clear, I don't believe any of these theories, uh, the more extreme version of the theory is that the refs wanted Ohio State to win. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think they cared. But you're in a, you're in a stadium with 110,000 people going nuts. I, I think it's completely natural that, that you're going to, to maybe favor that team a little bit. And Michigan would have gotten the same advantage if they had been at home. 
Um, but, but that's, that, you know, you're right. It's just a bunch of 50-50 calls, and, and they all went one way. But there was also the, the unsportsmanlike conduct penalty for throwing, um, you know, throwing his pen or throwing a play sheet or whatever it was, which was kind of a unusual call to penalize a coach for, for tossing something in the air. I think they, they said it landed on the 50-yard line. I mean, that was one where it's like Harbaugh hurt his team and was, I like Harbaugh, I understand the intensity, but he is a huge crybaby and he did do something wrong. And, you know, when you throw a sheet onto the 50-yard line and then to listen to his explanation for it was that's a technical in basketball. Well, this is, so anyway, he asked the ref, why'd you call that? They said, well, in basketball, that's a technical if you believe Harbaugh. And Harbaugh says, this isn't basketball. Well, it is, all you all you are a professional not trying to hurt your team and I know you're emotional but he's always doing crap like that with pens and papers and all sorts of accoutrement keep it to yourself Harbaugh. pens and papers yeah, remember mm-hmm. he threw, he's got that he's, he's got all sorts of props well, it's never been a penalty before so it's either a penalty or it's not you know I mean that's the, I, I agree you know if you if he's if you're gonna penalize that then it's ridiculous that he's doing it and he should stop doing it but you know I I, I don't I didn't go back and review the table on this but I, I saw you know, Urban Myers broke his headset during a national championship game two years ago. I, I but why? Saw but that is that is. But that after. didn't leave the sideline. Like the announcers, we didn't. I didn't see any tape. The announcer says it it landed on the fifty yard line. No, I assume that didn't mean the fifty yard line on the sidelines. I assume that meant whatever because it was yeah. windy. It blew out onto the field, and that's where it's like it's not. Look, you can do whatever you want on your own sideline. As soon as it's on my field, you're getting a penalty. I think that's perfectly reasonable. But okay, so Ben, my question is about the clip that we heard from Harbaugh yeah. uh, after the game, and sort of what is his responsibility, or what should it be? I mean, he is performing some fan service there, right? Like he's right. voicing what the fans are feeling. But is should he be like more magnanimous? Should he, sure. you know, quote unquote, accept the outcome of the election? Uh, <laughs> Um, well, one thing I wanted to point out is that uh, in knowing how Harbaugh, this was almost certainly intentional. When when Ohio, and Michigan and Ohio State uh, were both up for the Rose Bowl in 1973, and it actually had to be uh, decided via a vote of Big Ten athletic directors who got to go, um, the vote went in Ohio State's favor, and Ohio State won the Rose Bowl. And, and Bo Shebeckler after that said, and you can see the clips of him uh, saying, I'm very bitter about the result of the, of the vote. So Harbaugh was, 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 if we bring up the idea of fan service, Harbaugh was making kind of a deep cut reference probably, to, to a similar incident in 1973. That's, that's good shit. Yeah. I like that. Which is kind of like, well, yeah, it's, all, I, I, it's like that's why people like college football right there. You know, that's the attachment, is is that kind of um, continuity. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't think he went too far uh, with the comments. You know, he was disappointed. Uh, he, he didn't say we lost the game because of the rest. I mean, anyone who watched the game, that Michigan still could have won the game about 15 times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, despite all these calls. Yeah, they fumbled uh, the ball at the one-yard line. Yeah, I mean, and they, you know, they, they didn't, uh, they, they let the guy score on the next play after fourth and one, you know? I mean, they, of course, there were, there were millions of things, and if he had said something like, the refs, there was a conspiracy against us and the refs took it away from us, I think that'd be ridiculous. But yeah, to just, just express what the, what the people at home are thinking and to show that his, his kind of uh, passion for the, the game is similar to theirs. They think there's nothing wrong with that. And I, I don't think he said anything, uh, you know, to kind of disparage the Ohio State players' effort or their performance or anything like that. So, I, I don't know, I thought that was in within reason. I also think it's good tactics in light of the fact that this is a subjective decision about who gets in, and there's still a chance for Michigan to get in, and if you give rise to the sure. theory, hey, they were kind of screwed, one or two voters can be swayed by that. Right, if they're going to, you know, if things go haywire and they're, and they're not sure who to put in the fourth spot, 
uh, yeah, uh, in the playoffs, um, that could that that kind of lobbying uh, could certainly could certainly help their cause. Do they even need lobbying, Ben? I mean, this was a ten and two team that Don't lost ben two that games. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the softball for him. Um, that <laughs> lost two games by a total of four points, both on the last play of the game. They clearly outplayed Ohio State over the clearly. course of the game. Mm, I clearly. thought so, mm. um, except for the you know the end where they had chances to win and they kind of blew yeah. it. Except when their quarterback <laughs> kept throwing interceptions and <laughs> the other team running. Them Ohio State touchdown. had like fifty yards passing going into the fourth quarter. I mean, it wasn't as if Ohio State dominated this game. They oh, certainly no. didn't. Ohio, can, you, can you say that Ohio State is a better football team Michigan overall than two, Michigan? Michigan had two million more votes than Ohio State. <laughs> um, so I think there is a plausible case to be made. If the if the charge of the the playoff committee, the 12 people that will sit in a hotel room and decide who gets to play for the college football national championship, is to pick the four best teams, yeah. I don't know that Ohio State's any better than Michigan. I completely agree. And I mean, and you know, and if you look at the other contenders to get into the weeds on it, Michigan has actually beaten three of them, Colorado, Penn State, and Wisconsin. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that if you were going to pick the four best teams, that, that Michigan would have a very good case to be the fourth team. I also think that everyone is going to get demolished by, you know, 53 to nothing by Alabama. So it's kind of a, just a completely moot argument. Yes, I did look at these two teams and I said, strengths minuses. I don't see two really flawed teams. And it's hard to tell uh, just by teams matching up who, who's if maybe it's the other teams causing the flaws. But it does seem that Ohio State and Michigan are flawed teams. I mean, just compare this Ohio State team to last year's team. Possibly unfair. Sure. But it seems like last year's team is so much better. Then again, I don't understand how last year's team didn't win the national championship. But that's that. Yeah, and especially if we're looking at this as who could best challenge Alabama, the Michigan quarterbacking situation okay. seems not ideal. Nope. Uh, in that, they regard. don't have a quarterback. And they also, do have I, a quarterbacking situation. That is true. <laughs> also, I just feel like this is a case where anti-West Coast bias is playing a role because mm-hmm. Washington has been a bit off the radar for the last few years. Everybody knows that Chris Peterson is a great coach. People, you know, kind of know that Jake Browning is a good quarterback. But that is a really good team. And if you look at just the consensus of all the computer rankings, if you just average them all, then Michigan uh, is just ahead of Washington. And then if Washington wins the Pac-12 championship by beating a Colorado team that, yes, Michigan has already beaten. But if they um, beat Colorado, I think it would be hard to argue it's impossible to argue that Michigan is clearly better than Washington. I think it would be hard to argue to leave Washington out of the playoff at the expense of Michigan. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one loss Washington definitely deserves to get it. I'm, all, I'm actually, you know, the playoff thing, it doesn't, as a fan, I think we lost our chance, you know? I mean, I think that obviously it was a tight game and I think we should have won, but uh, this counts as a playoff game. I mean, we, we don't need to see Ohio State and Michigan play again. Uh, Ohio State won the game. So, you know, get put Washington in there, put someone else in there. I I don't I don't I don't like the idea of of this of pulling for a rematch in, in in the playoff. Unless, like I said, you know, everything goes haywire and every other team has two losses. But but yeah, like this was their shot and and they and they missed yeah. it. And that's what part of what made it so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Ben Mathis, you've been a uh, great ambassador for your state and uh and the university. Thank you very much for joining us. All right, thanks a lot. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, 
and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last Monday, very rudely, just after we'd recorded that week's podcast, U.S. Soccer announced it was dumping Jurgen Klinsmann after five years as coach and technical director of the national team. That national team had just started the final round of qualifying for the 2018 World Cup with losses to Mexico at home, two to one, and to Costa Rica on the road, four to nothing. In a statement, Sunil Galati, the president of U.S. Soccer, said, while we remain confident that we have quality players to help us advance to Russia 2018, the form and growth of the team up to this point left us convinced that we need to go in a different direction. The different direction the team is going in is not really a different direction. The new coach is an old coach, Bruce Arena, uh, who led the team to the 2002 and 2006 World Cups before being replaced by Bob Bradley, who was in turn replaced by Klinsman. Stefan, Arena's 65 years old. He's clearly a stopgap for U.S. soccer. He's an American. He's familiar with the player pool from his long tenure in MLS and with the national team. And he presumably can get the team to perform well enough to at least get into the top three of qualifying in CONCACAF and make it to the World Cup in 2018. Is that the right move, the right thought process for the U.S. program right now? I don't have a problem with it. He knows how to manage qualifying. He knows CONCACAF teams. He knows how difficult it is to play on the road uh, in this region. Like you said, he's familiar with the core players. He knows what MLS players might be worth bringing in for auditions um, or spots on the team. Um, You know, Tactically, it's not going to be a gigantic change. I think the idea here is to get the United States to the World Cup finals in Russia in 2018. And then after that, I think Galati, who I don't think will be displaced as the head of U.S. soccer anytime soon. After that, I think they go for some big name South American or European coach that has a better tactical and management track record than Jurgen Klinsmann does. Well, before before we get to Mike, why do you think that Galati won't get replaced? Because I think he has amassed an enormous amount of power inside U.S. soccer, and he has elevated U.S. soccer's uh, reputation and influence within world soccer inside FIFA. He's on the executive committee. He's, he's taken U.S. soccer to places where it's never been inside the organization of the sport internationally. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, given FIFA's, um, you know, and FIFA's decades of corruption. I mean, it is a fact that Sunil Gulati is actually listened to by people inside. Presumably having an old hand in place would help with getting the 2026 World Cup. Yes, it's all politics. I'll give you another reason why he will be retained, because he is the president of the federation with the best soccer team in the world, with the soccer team that Mm -hmm. has redefined the sport, the team that won the last World Cup and was a finalist in the World Cup beforehand and is a huge Olympic champion. I'm, of course, talking about the U.S. women's team and the fact that we say, well, why would he be retained and is he doing a bad job? Uh, 
of course, only looks at it through the prism of the men's team. And then when we look at the women's team, you could make an argument, ah, but does he really deserve so much credit with the women's team? The women are claiming that, you know, they're being treated as second-class citizens. Uh, But he has overseen their success as the best in the world. So it's either they are second-class citizens or they aren't. If we don't treat them as second-class citizens, he was the guy at the helm when they achieved their greatness. So back to Klinsmann. You can really slice and dice his his record in a bunch of different ways. There were some really good moments for the team, you know, winning the group at the 2014 World Cup. And when that draw came out, everyone said that they weren't going to make it through. There was a huge amount of doubt there. Um, You know, you could argue that they didn't perform particularly well on the field or didn't look good at the 2014 World Cup. And you could make the same argument at the Copa America when they made the semifinals and didn't look particularly awesome doing it. You know, they beat Germany and the Netherlands and friendlies. They lost to Guatemala. Um, When you add it all up, I think you can create a narrative that can cut either way. And it seems like a lot of this was personal and that people didn't like him both within U.S. soccer and in the fan community, that he never would take um, personal blame for anything that the team did, he would always, you know, blame the players by name or the kind of unknowing and unthinking, you know, stupid soccer fans who just didn't understand the game at the level that he did. And so I think when you have a record that can cut both ways, you need to be a good politician. And he really was not. No, he wasn't. And and look, the, the cutting the bad way is is more. I mean, there was a Gold Cup semifinal loss to Jamaica, the youth program, uh, overall development that Klinsman was put in charge of overhauling. U23 team didn't make the Olympics twice under his watch, didn't make it to the Confederations Cup, the uh, the pre-World Cup tournament the year before, um, blown out by Colombia in, in that Copa America as well. Um, and Argentina. And Argentina. That was my as well. Um, you know, tactically, and he also overpromised. I mean, Klinsman came in saying we're going to create an American style. It'll be attacking. And occasionally against weaker opponents and friendlies, it showed up. But overall, there wasn't a whole lot of progress. I think you, you can argue that teams under Bob Bradley or under Bruce Arena 14 years ago were better than the teams that Jurgen Klinsman assembled. And it was clear because of the inconsistency that he delivered in putting lineups together, putting playing players out of position, throwing in weird formations from time to time, his loyalty to certain older players or German-American players that weren't performing that well in a lot of these games, that he lost the players. And I'll go back to my pet peeve of not putting Landon Donovan on the World Cup team. I think that alienated players too. Brian Strauss had written a piece in 2013 for the Sporting News that quoted, you know, two dozen people, mostly off the record, talking about Klinsman's flaws. And a lot of those, I think, proved to be true. You know, if Grady Little gets fired for leaving in Pedro, why doesn't Klinsman get fired for that one thing of leaving Donovan off the team, which a stupid soccer fan like me says, that doesn't seem to make sense. And then they go through the tournaments like, you know what they need? A Landon Donovan type player. And then it comes out after the tournament, not having Landon Donovan on the team hurt the cohesion of the team. And I understand why he promised, oh, we're going to be in a, we're going to have an attacking style because that was the thing that the team lacked. So, you know, if you come in as a basketball coach and the team's bad at defense, you're going to say, we're going to preach defense. But if you come in as a coach, 
watching the team as a good defense and you can't score, you're going to say, we're going to open up the offense. So that's what you promised because that's what we want. And for a second or two, it seemed that maybe Clint Dempsey could put the ball in the back of the net, but we just never have the attackers with flair um, who could finish the job. But to me, Klinsman also seems, and Stefan, you would know more than me, but it seems like he was the kind of guy who wanted to win because he's a professional and he has an ego, but he wanted to win his way and he kind of wanted to prove a point by winning his way. You know, some people would say this about Don Coriel that, uh, you know, he'd sure he'd like to win, but he really wants to impress you with how, you know, um, crazy his offense is and all these schemes that he could make. And it seems to me that Klinsman wanted people to say, wow, the United States won the Klinsman way. And the United States isn't good enough that you could even sacrifice any parts of the whatever natural advantages you have by saying, you know, we're going to subjugate some natural advantages so Klinsman can put his stamp on things. Well, I don't even think that was evident. I mean, it's very hard in international soccer to create style and change something, even in a short period of time, like five years. I mean, these players play for their club teams predominantly. They get together for camps that are a week or two weeks at the most. So it's hard to develop a kind of cohesive style. And I think it does take a force of personality and someone that these players who are flying in from all around the world really buy into trying to create something that, that they take direction from on to a high and they believe that something different is being passed on to them. And I don't think Klinsman offered that. I think Klinsman was kind of a blowhard. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it was about fitness and nutrition and teamwork and caring and finding your comfort zone. Um, And this was sort of ethereal bullshit in a lot of ways. But ultimately, I don't think that's what ended up costing him his job. I think U.S. soccer, Galati and others probably just got sick of his his excuses. There's a real there was a telling paragraph in a piece by Doug McIntyre on ESPN over the weekend in which he says that. Um, in private, Klinsman's excuses were even more bold. He told Galati he was convinced that the Gold Cup was fixed so Mexico would win, setting up the big money playoff match against the U.S. to go to the Confederations Cup. I mean, that's just insane if true. Mm-hmm. I think that the U.S. was in the, uh, you know, if you look at where they were in the last World Cup, in the round of 16. And I think the U.S. has a conception that they're not one of the 10 best teams in the world, but they should be in the next 10. And their rankings before Klinsman and during Klinsman are now in the 30s. And if you add that up and you combine 4 nothing against Costa Rica, most coaches with that track record are going to get fired in a federation that sees itself as underperforming by 10, 12 spots in the world rankings where they should. Well, I think most coaches would have been fired before he was, but I don't think that's necessarily like it's always struck me as kind of bizarre how trigger happy both club and national team, you know, soccer is like um, hockey is another example where they just seem to fire coaches like every week for no particular reason, just because that's the culture of the sport. So I don't think saying that like, oh, Klinsman would have been fired earlier if um, he was in another country necessarily means that other country would have been more rational. Like, I think I tend to think more than you guys do that, that this was a good bet, one that didn't work out. And I think people have just gone a little overboard and saying the program's in like way worse shape than it was than when he got there. He expanded the player pool. I think there are a lot of 
guys playing for the U.S. now that wouldn't have come there, and not necessarily just German ones, maybe like Aaron Johansson mm-hmm. who's from Iceland, or you know, who you can name a, a bunch of other ones who wouldn't be playing for the and U.S. He persuaded them to to play to to cap them. He got them to join the team, and I think that it, he deserves a lot of credit for that. And Kristen Pulisic and Bobby Wood are better really to good. lock them up. Yeah, we'll have them forever now. We've ruined them for other countries. Way to go, Jurgen. He was the best pimp, bad coach, great pimp. These are really good young players, and I think to argue that this team is in the dumpster now because of Klinsmann is, I think, counterfactual. Absolutely. Uh, There were a bunch of bad results, um, especially in the region, but it's really easy. It's, like, too easy. Like, they fucked up. It's too easy to get to the World Cup out of this region, and I think because of that, Mm. it buys U.S. soccer and Galati and whoever else the opportunity to experiment and if you if your goal is really to win the World Cup, everything that, you know, I think you were saying this, Mike, basically like you're not good enough to do X or Y as the U.S. Well, that's definitely true. But I think you are – the region is weak enough that you can take the risk of like taking a temporary hit on your team, like making your team worse as being the like downside with yes. the potential upside of like making it awesome. You right. can do There's, a rebuild if it is a rebuild. Right. If it's and just Klinsman, a teardown without the rebuild, that's not good. Well, what, what Klinsman definitely pointed out flaws in the U.S. system, the structure from youth to national team. What's not clear if he made any significant steps toward fixing that. Okay, and that is... was supposed to be his strength. And that's the part that I still don't really understand. And I think that you need Sunil Gulati to better explain or someone inside U.S. soccer to really explain how – the system is changing. This is, I think this is the most fascinating point. So when we look at U.S. soccer, men's soccer, we not only say the coach is flawed, but we don't have a system that can compete with the other systems. We either don't have a culture, we don't have a pipeline, all these things. And yet, with women's soccer, things are great. So how is it that the same people oversee a structure that get it totally right on the women's side to the, po- to the point where we're either always number one or two in the world and just are an abject disaster? And I would say to Two things. One, it's just the quality of the players. Like, that's what it comes down to. And I know you'll say, well, the system can create better players. Can they? Can they really? I wouldn't I, say that. The U.S. women were best in the world when there was no system. Right. So we just have better women's soccer players than anyone else in the world. And we just no, have the rest the of the 30th. world has worse women's soccer that's players the same than the United thing. States. We ju- that's the same thing. And we just have the 30th best men's soccer players as anywhere else in the world. And no matter how you tinker at the the edges you could get to one round further or a little bit better but that's the situation and the teams winning the world cup aren't the team yes iceland had a great run and belgium maybe outperformed but it's the team don't forget greece sure with they have a little bit of a, a burst that if the u.s had won one more round against ghana eight years ago or whatever however many years ago in south africa against against uh, belgium. Arena got us to the quarterfinals baby i know so if we had one more win maybe we'd say this is a side point my point is that it's just the players. It's exactly like the uh, conversation around how do you create a great public school. You know, you have to have the students, the potential pupils who are ready to learn. You have to have the players who are good. And that's nothing that the people at the top can do, in my opinion. Well, look, with the women, we were the first country to to play women's soccer, to support it. That's a big advantage in men's soccer. 
we didn't start playing it seriously for 120 years, 30 years after so the sport was created. We're, we're thinking about this, this wrong. Like, yeah. we, we shouldn't make the U.S. team better. We need to figure out a way to make every other country worse. worse. Trump. Yeah. <laughs> but Trump, Trump, you're saying Trump should coach the U.S. men? No, I'm <laughs> saying somehow this is my opinion of what Trump's plan is. Make America great, dot, 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 comparatively. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. On Monday afternoon in New York City, Magnus Carlsen and Sergei Karyakin played the 12th and final scheduled match of the Chess World Championship. They played to a 45-minute draw. That leaves the championship tied at six points each, with the top-ranked Norwegian and the ninth-ranked Russian playing 10 draws and earning one win apiece. Carlsen and Karyakin will now play a series of championship-deciding tiebreaker games on Wednesday. We recorded the segment that follows before Monday's 12th game. Oliver Rader, who's been covering the championship for 538, joined us in our studio in New York to talk Carlson and Karyakin and their battle for chess supremacy. Hey, Ali. Hey, how are you? I'm doing quite well. And, you know, nine ties is really what everyone in sports uh, is mm-hmm, looking for mm-hmm. in terms of uh, excitement. I've read kind of differing accounts of whether this has been a tense and thrilling championship match or a boring defensive one. Uh, how would you kind of uh, describe it? Yeah, I think the the one big takeaway is that not all draws are created equal. Uh, so there have been some absolutely thrilling draws, especially games three and four. Uh, they each took, I think, six and seven hours, respectively, something like 75 to 90 moves, and they were real roller coasters. Um, Carlson was on the attack. He's the favorite. Everybody thought he would completely roll over Karyakin, and, and the match wouldn't take as long as it has. But Karyakin has basically been uh, the Houdini of chess. He's been escaping from situations that even grandmasters in the tournament venue have thought were impossible. He's been constructing indestructible fortresses. And, and, you know, frankly, it seems like he's lucky to be alive, but his defense has kept him in this match. He's just like Putin. (laughs) He is, is in fact, an avowed Putin supporter. Um, He is from the Ukraine, uh, but switched his chess allegiances to Russia. And uh, even on his Instagram, he's sporting Putin t-shirts. I think he would say he's not from the Ukraine, right? He'd say, I'm from Crimea. That's Which, right. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so if he wasn't such a, I don't know how villainous he is personally, but certainly not aligning with what the, the uh, magnanimous Magnus, the, uh, the Norwegian heartthrob, or they want to make him into a heartthrob by pairing him next to Liv Tyler. I mean, he's not the pure villain. I think he'd have a lot of elements of the underdog and not exactly out of nowhere, but he's, he's not the second best player in the world, uh, it would seem. 
Yeah, that's right. So when they scheduled this tournament uh, in New York, it's the first time it's been here since 1995 when it was on the 107th floor of the World Trade Center. Uh, the hope was that an American would be vying for the title for the first time since Bobby Fischer in 1972 when chess was really took over the U.S. It was a real fever in this country. And uh, Fabiano Caruana is the top American player and the world number two rated player. Uh, grew up a little bit in Brooklyn, and the hope I think when they scheduled the tournament here was was that we would have an American. But yeah, Karyakin. Obviously, I don't know him personally, but I've seen him every day in you know post match press conferences, and seems like a sweet guy. You know, he's married, he's got a little kid. Um, He's very, very soft-spoken, very thoughtful, and yeah, he doesn't. He certainly doesn't play the villain. But it seems like the the mainstream press, when something like a chess world championship takes place, wants to play up the geopolitical issues. There was a story on page one of the New York Times today that went way out of its way to talk about Putin and Norway and more flights over Norway by the Russians. It's almost as if I don't know. We want to see Bobby Fischer against Boris Spassky in 1972 again because we love these sorts of uh, political rivalries. Yeah, I read that story this morning, Stefan, and it, it did a, a whole lot of work to sort of justify yeah. its headline. Um, and I, I yeah, think the headline was a, a world chess championship, familiar overtones of East-West politics, Norway being the West and Russia <laughs> being the yeah. East, although they touch <laughs> – yeah, and, and I think, you know, the, by some measures, you know, Norway is the most democratic country in the world and, and Russia is Russia. So, you know, correction, they don't touch Finland's between. But go ahead, go ahead. But, uh, you know, I think covering these guys and thinking about chess basically for all of my working hours for the last two or three weeks, you know, the, I, I don't think that these guys are, are political. I think they're two guys who are really, really good at chess. And, you know, they're, they're professional friends. They, they're like, Touring golf pros that, you know, they go to tournaments together and, and they're certainly rivals for these two weeks, but, you know, they seem to be on relatively uh, friendly terms. So I, th I think reading too many politics in into the match is a bit of a mistake. I mean, doesn't the geopolitical gloss happen because mainstream writers and, you know, I would put myself in this category too, just don't understand the game at the level that you would need to understand it to write about it as a sport or or a mind sport even right and and i think more so than just mainstream media and and journalists i, I don't even think a lot of the grandmasters at the match understand exactly what these two guys are doing so grandmaster is a very awesome. it's a very elite you know title that i think there's something like 12 or 1500 grandmasters in the world but, you know, it's like the better you get at something, the more you realize how good people better than you are. So these are, you know, these, there's orders of magnitude within grandmasterdom. And, and even some of the commentators, I think, struggle to find the deeper meaning in some of these uh, two players' moves. And it's, you know, been a very enjoyable struggle for me, but a struggle nonetheless to kind of bring, you know, a sense of, a sense of drama and a sense of narrative to the games. And it's, it's certainly there buried. But yeah, bringing that out, I think, has been a struggle for, for everyone covering the match. It's classic Dumbledore and Grindelwald. I mean, these, even the grandmasters don't understand it. And by the way, the big tension, not just in this game, but in this interview, is do Norway and Russia touch? And in fact, they do touch, by the way. <laughs> There's a little crossing. Sorry, sorry, Stefan, go ahead. <laughs> um, how much do the players themselves attempt to explain what has just transpired? I get the 
the sense that this is not like a, uh, you know, an NFL locker room where if you get the right guy, he's going to actually explain in some depth what he was thinking and what happened on a, on a particular play. I'm not seeing a lot of that at this point. Will that happen later? So, yeah, after every game, uh, with the exception of one where Magnus angrily stormed out of the press conference, um, they do the one where he, the one that he lost. That's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, go figure. That was, I think, game eight. Um, and uh, yeah, so after every game, they'll, they'll do interviews and, and they'll go through the game together um, at, you know, at a big desk in front of a press conference room, essentially. And they'll go through alternative moves and variations, but they do it so quickly and, and in such a coded grandmaster language that uh, speaking for myself is very hard to follow. So they say, you know, what did you think on when you moved D4? Oh, I was thinking I was weak on the king side. Oh, but what about C4? What about the bishop? And they, they just rattle it off so quick. I mean, it's, it's almost literally like, like another language. So they, they try to go through the game, but they're speaking at, at such a high level that, that it's difficult to, to make heads or tails of for a, a, a potzer like me. So you got to look at their gameplay. So it's not how they explain it. It's you have to look at their gameplay and the computer can suggest other moves. And in general, um, who we know what the results are going into this game. But in general, who is left, I guess, better uh, opportunities on the table who's or who's made the most of their opportunities? Yeah, Carlson has has left edges on the table. I, I think that's. I don't think anyone would argue with that. And and you could also. I mean, you could flip the board around and say that Karyakin has found amazing defensive um, uh, tactics and strategies. But I think if you, I, I wrote a piece that uh, went up yesterday uh, uh, at five thirty eight that sort of plots uh, computer calculated advantages uh, throughout every each of the eleven games that have taken place so far. And uh, Karyakin's been fighting from behind, essentially. So he's gotten draws in nine games, and, and he won a very unlikely win with Black. So Black moves second and has a theoretical disadvantage. And that's, yeah, I think he's been, he's been sort of trying, fighting to keep uh, his head above water in, in the match. And the one game that Carlson won, uh, a, a long game, six-and-a-half-hour game, and Karyakin surrendered. Why? Because he knew that he just saw it playing out and knew that he couldn't, not only couldn't win, but he was going to lose eventually, or he just couldn't take it. Why that's, surrender? That's right. Yeah, I think that was game 10, and it got down to uh, an end game where uh, I believe Magnus Carlson was up a pawn, and, and these guys are so good at calculating out and knowing what's going to happen, especially in the end game, and it was clear that that pawn would pose big problems for Karyak, and, and he put himself out right, of his own pawn, misery. How many, what were the other pieces left? I think it was four pawns to three, if I'm and remembering that was it. correctly. And, well, and you know you can't win if uh, you have all pawns. I mean, a pawn, to, to these guys, a pawn is a pawn <laughs> is the world. They're, they're world for a pawn. Um, but it's interesting. You mentioned kind of the computer, and the computer is. Uh, as, I mean, it's it's software. It's computer engines, evaluation engines that that give basically a number, and if that number is positive, the computer sees white as having an advantage. If it's negative, black. And this is sort of the lens through which myself included, a lot of the spectators are viewing the match because I can't, you know, I'm I'm not good enough to look at this board and say, oh, I think black is slightly better here. And um, so these engines are sort of the lens through which. Yeah. We're watching the match. It's very interesting. But since Carlson or a great champion can beat a computer, how much do we trust the computer to say that Carlson's losing? Uh, so Carlson has absolutely no chance against a good computer. Oh, really? Computers, I could probably beat Magnus Carlson with my iPhone. Computers have come so far since, what was it, 1996, the first wow. Deep Blue Kasparov match. Uh, computers, uh, computer engines make absolute mincemeat of top players. 
So what is the experience like of watching the match then? You know, your analysis, as you just said, it's like, according to Stockfish, the engine, he was ahead here. And are you watching them on a screen and just looking for like, maybe his brow is a little furrowed and I'm going to write about that in my dispatch? Like, how are you trying to take this all in as a reporter and an observer? Yeah, I think it's worth a few words about what the venue's like. Um, so it's being played in the South Street Seaport, which is a, the, basically the lower Manhattan on the East River. And it takes up a huge floor um, of one of the buildings down there. And most of the spectators are watching on flat screen TVs, basically. Some of them will pull out their phones to do analysis or laptops um, so it, basically the viewing experience at the venue is a lot like what you would get at home if you were sitting on your couch and paid the 15 bucks to get the you know official app or whatever. Um, you can see the actual players if you go into what is very reminiscent of like a reptile house in a zoo. You enter through dark curtains and it's very dimly lit and, and you watch the players through very thick one-way glass and you can see them but they can't see you. Uh, so it's very, very odd. So I'll wander in there occasionally. Um, but it's, I, I think riveting is not the first word that comes to mind. Um, but yeah, I, I, I listened to the commentary. There's a grandmaster, Judith Polger, one of the best female players of all time, uh, who does commentary. Uh, she's very, very good and very, very insightful. And yeah, I, I've been kind of talking to people who aren't the players. So I've, I'm talking to spectators. There's been a lot of... Uh, kids at the venue who will, you know, sit cross-legged on the floor and play the grandmasters games on their own boards. So did a story talking to them. Um, there's a very famous chess club in New York City called the Marshall Club. And I wandered over there one night and actually found Fabiano Caruana, uh, who would have been the challenger. And he was there just playing speed chess uh, just for fun. And so I chatted with him about what he thought of the match. So yeah, I've been kind of covering like the interest in, in the match rather than the players uh, themselves. But I think once once someone finally puts this thing away, um, I hope to sit down and kind of get their, get their firsthand uh, take on the match. And let's uh, also mention that in a sport, a mind sport, that is so given to draws, I would say that chess has uh, tie-breaking scenarios so far superior to soccer, it's unbelievable. Can you tell me, so if this whole thing ends in a draw, tell me about the succession of different variations of chess that they go through. Yeah, so this will be on, on Wednesday. And, and it used to be that if the match was tied at the end, the champion would have the right to sort of retain the title. And mm -hmm. that's no longer the case. They'll actually break the tie. So they'll start off with four 25-minute aside games uh, on Wednesday afternoon. So normal games, the, the full-length games, you'll get uh, 100 minutes plus 50 minutes after 40 moves plus 15 minutes after 60 moves, so they can take seven or eight hours, but these will take about an hour maximum. So they'll do four of those. Uh, if those are still tied, uh, they'll go down to five minutes aside, and they'll play two of those. Mm -hmm. And if those are still tied, eventually we'll get down to something called Armageddon, uh, which, you know, I'm not supposed to root from the press box, <laughs> but I very much hope we play Armageddon <laughs> of course. chess. Yeah. Uh, so how that works is uh, the player with the white pieces will get five minutes, and the player with the black pieces will get only four. But the wrinkle is if that game is drawn, black wins. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's it's what's called time odds. So that, Do players ever just play Armageddon games for, for fun or in tournaments? Um, I'm not sure that there's Armageddon tournaments, but you can uh, log on to most major chess 
websites and play Armageddon with, yeah. with anyone across the country, which, Stefan, we should absolutely do after this is over. <laughs> it's the high-low Omaha of chess. Now, I know chess people are brilliant, but why do they always have an even number of games? If they don't want it to end in a draw, I've just worked this out in my head, an odd number of games. It's like the Supreme Court. With no, it would justices. just be like six and a half, six and a half at 13 uh, games. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. if you can draw an individual game, I guess the total doesn't doesn't matter that much. Ali, being part of the chess world as you are, but also part of uh, my world, the Scrabble world, um, are there parallels in terms of how these subcultures see each other and see the potential for growth? Chess obviously has a much deeper base of participants and tournament play and cash um, uh, prizes. But on some level, it's the same hoping for everyone to pay attention at some point. And that's what it feels like we had here, particularly with the chess organizers wanting an American to make the finals. Yeah, I think um, I think there are parallels. I think, you you know, Stefan, if, if you're at a chess tournament, everybody laments, you know, the prize money isn't nearly what it should be. The, the people watching at home aren't nearly what they should be. And the complaints at the chess tournament are exactly the same, right? But at the chess tournament, you've got, you know, an open vodka bar and you've got Russian oligarchs milling around. So it's sort of it's sort of all relative. I think every mind sport kind of wants to be more mainstream. I think chess is in another galaxy than, than Scrabble. Um, but there, you know, there are non sort of economic parallels. I, you know, the the obsession uh, is certainly present uh, at at both kinds of tournaments, post mortems of games, mm -hmm. um, sort of what would have been. You know, had I had I played this word here, or had I moved this rook here, and sort of just a obsessive analysis and kind of always wanting to to master um, the game, be be it a spectator or, or a competitor. Um, I think the passion is is the thing that. That is, you know, the kind of the, the biggest through line there. Yeah, master the unmasterable. And also, you, the, the, I think the fact that at the very highest level, the players almost care less about winning and losing than they do about gaining a deeper understanding of the game. Oliver Rader is covering the World Chess Championship for 538. You can read his coverage there. You can also follow him on Twitter. His handle is Ali. He'll be uh, tweeting about the final game on Monday, as well as the tiebreakers on Wednesday, hopefully an Armageddon game. Ali, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. Now it's time for After Balls, and there are a lot of great uh, chess openings, defenses. I'm partial to the hippopotamus defense, mm -hmm. the kangaroo defense, but mostly the hyper-accelerated pterodactyl. <laughs> you made that That's up. not I a real know. one. That is a real one. Oh, uh, got to say to Ruiz a, Lopez... Your queen's gambit accepted and declines. Your Maybe classics. that's why Scrabble isn't as popular no as chess. No good openings. Great names for yeah. moves. Well, they'd have to be the name I, of the word, and it's also random. <laughs> it could be named after great players. The it's not all just names. The Ziziva opening. Yeah. Uh, Mike, what is your hyper-accelerated pterodactyl? The SEC has 14 teams. Only four of them had winning records in conference. That's when one team goes 8-0, and a lot of the teams are middling. The only winning team in the SEC East was Florida, meaning Tennessee, a nationally ranked team, or at least it was until the rankings come out again, uh, is 4-4, four and four, will not be competing in the championship game, will not be going to the Sugar Bowl as they had hoped, but did win a different championship, their coach, intoned before a game against in-state rival Vanderbilt, a game that Tennessee was expected to win. When Butch Jones said of his senior class, quote, they've won the biggest championship, 
That's the championship of life. Twitter went nuts. It made mock-ups of the life championship ring with a lot of diamonds. It edited the Butch Jones, or rather the Tennessee uh, Wikipedia page for its list of championships to include Championship of Life 2016. But then in a backlash, or a backlash to the backlash, there was uh, the Tennessee denizens trying to point out that the senior class had gone through a lot, especially if you look at Butch Jones' actual words. Let me read them to you. The Rocky Top Insider said, this is uh, the full championship of life quote from Butch Jones. These individuals mean a lot to me personally. And you know, you know that the personal is coming through when you talk about people as not just people, but individuals. And they mean a lot to our football program. When we talk about winning championships, they're a champion. They've won the biggest championship. And that's the championship of life. And they're going to be college graduates. Some of them are already college graduates. What they've brought from a leadership standpoint, from a stability standpoint, from getting Tennessee football back. Again, they finished four and four in conference. It used to be just win a game. Now it's not just winning the game, which is good since they lost half of them in conference. It's how you win the game. And now it's what's next. That's everything that they've built over the course of time. I talked about being 14 and three. This football program won't be 14 and three without our seniors. I'm indebted to them. Vol for life. I'll be a part of their life for many years to come. Well, that's nice. And then Tennessee went out and lost to Vanderbilt, meaning the Commodores made mock-ups on Twitter saying that they won the in-state championship of life. Stefan, what is your hyper-accelerated pterodactyl? Well, late in the third quarter of its loss to Ohio State on Saturday, Michigan was flagged for offside. Jim Harbaugh, however, apparently thought Ohio State jumped first. So, as we discussed earlier, the Michigan coach flung his play card in the air, spun around, and then spiked his headphones. The refs called unsportsmanlike conduct. Ohio State scored a couple of plays later. The flag was one more data point for Harbaugh's postgame complaints about the refs. More important, as sideline tantrums go, I don't think it really registers a mention among great tantrums, especially in the context of behavior at previous Michigan-Ohio State games, at least ones in which Ohio State was coached by Woody Hayes. Hayes was, of course, an Ohio State legend. He coached the team for 38 seasons, won three national championships. He was also known for his volatile Bobby Knight-like behavior with players, which regularly included punching, smacking, or hitting them, often on the helmet or pads, as one assistant on Hayes' staff told ESPN in 2013, he probably hurt himself more than anything. Two of Hayes' most memorable outbursts occurred during the annual Michigan game. In 1971, Ohio State, trailing 10-7 late in the game, was driving downfield when a pass was intercepted by Michigan defender Tom Darden. Here's another legend, Michigan radio man Bob Eufer with the call. The quarterback is Don Lampka. He has Wakefield out. He's back for a pass. He has plenty of time. He throws downfield, and it is... Caught. It's intercepted. It's intercepted by Darden. Darden intercepts it. His second interception of the afternoon. His fourth of the season. And Michigan takes over on the 32-yard line. And Woody Hayes is out on the field. Woody Hayes is out trying to intimidate the officials. Woody Hayes is out there right now. And I would rest assured that Ohio State will be penalized now. Because Woody Hayes felt that Tommy Darden interfered with his intended pass receiver. And Woody Hayes is right out there on that field, and he's being penalized 15 yards. Listen to the crowd. As Woody Hayes is furious, he is screaming right up into the face of the umpire and the referee, 
and in a moment he's going to be kicked out of this ball game. All right, Hayes bumped at least one ref. He cursed apparently in the face of the others. Eufer, meanwhile, kept orating about Hayes here. You might say that with all his wins and awards and his Rose Bowl rings, it seems foolish. But Woody Hayes dwells in a unique jungle. The more you win as a great head coach, the more that's expected of you. Nobody escapes it. It's the elevator going up and down, Woody. It's been the same for all the great coaches, Yost, Chrysler, Daryl Royal, Vince Lombardi. And the final statement of that little oration by Eufer is that the magnified despair of defeat is the agony of success. Woody Hayes right now is suffering from the magnified despair of defeat, which is the agony you have to take when you're a successful coach. Oh, the unique jungle. Wasn't that fantastic? I love the unique jungle. How's that not a title of a way of a Hayes biography? (laughs) But what he wasn't doing there, Eufer, was describing what Hayes was actually doing at the time, which was destroying shit. He ripped up the sideline markers, threw a penalty flag into the crowd. Then he grabbed the first down marker from the chain gang guy, ripped out one of the black and yellow inserts and hurled the whole thing on the field. Then he walked 10 yards to the distance marker, ripped out the orange inserts from that, and the chain gang guy like engaged in a tug of war to not let Hayes take control of the equipment. All right. Six years later, 1977, Michigan led 14 to six again, late in the game, but an Ohio state receiver fumbled to catch inside the 10 Michigan recovered ABC cut to a sideline camera showing Hayes cursing to himself. Then Hayes saw the camera ran toward it and appeared to kick the cameraman. The announcers were Keith Jackson and former Notre Dame coach Ara Parsegan. They didn't mention it until four plays later when they went to the replay. Ohio State gets the ball at the 35. When Ohio State lost the ball a moment ago on the fumble, Woody Hayes, frustrated on an aggravating day, plunging toward one of our cameras. And... I'm told that he took a swing at one of our cameramen down there. Well, he's had a good year so far. All right, Hayes, of course, would lose his shit for the final time a year later at the end of the Gator Bowl against Clemson. Clemson was winning by two, a couple minutes to go. Nose guard Charlie Bauman picked off a pass by Ohio State's quarterback, Arch Schleister. He was tackled at the Buckeyes' sideline where Hayes grabbed him by the shoulder pads and punched him in the throat. Jackson and Parsegan were calling this game too, but apparently they didn't see the punch because they never mentioned it. And the one replay ABC showed obscured Hayes's punch. Woody Hayes was fired after that game. Josh, what's your hyper-accelerated pterodactyl? I'm not sure if this has ever happened before. I guess we did have done coordinated afterballs before on purpose, but this can be like a sort of who wore it best Oh, us, no. us weekly thing. No, there's not that much overlap, actually. Okay. So one thing that we've learned during uh, the Trump campaign is that coaches are assholes. Uh, Bobby Knight saying there's never been a more honest politician than Donald Trump. Mike Ditka saying, I think he has the fire in his belly to make America great again and probably do it the right way. That's mm-hmm. a good one. Mm-hmm. Lou Holtz saying he stayed at Trump's hotel and that he does nothing but go first class and everything. Trump 2016. 
Uh, if he was still alive, though, Woody Hayes would definitely be supporting Donald Trump. Hayes, who won 205 games as the Ohio State football coach before getting fired for punching Clemson's Charlie Bauman on the sideline of the 1978 Gator Bowl, was a lifelong Republican, and his friend Richard Nixon gave the eulogy when Hayes died in 1987. In 1979, a few months after Hayes punched an opposing player in the throat, that being Charlie Bauman, Nixon sent him a letter that read, Our mutual friend Cy Laughter sent me a Woody for Senator t-shirt. I think it is a good idea. Even better, I think, would be Woody for President. I am sure that our Russian friends, in quotes, wouldn't dare try to push us around in the Persian Gulf, Africa, Latin America, or other places in the world if they thought you had your finger on the button. Why would Nixon say that? Well, in 1969, Hayes said that the hundreds of unarmed Vietnamese civilians who were slaughtered at the My Lai massacre deserved to die, adding, and I wouldn't be so sure those women were innocent. The children are obviously innocent if they are less than five. In 1978, just a few months before he got fired, the BBC aired a 50-minute documentary on Hayes as part of a series on 13 American archetypes. Among the other people profiled were a private eye, a preacher, and First Lady Rosalind Carter. Here is a clip from that documentary, which I found via Sports Illustrated's Andy Staples, who tweeted about it last week. Woody Hayes sees himself as a commanding general. He even studies military history and uses it all the time to provide homilies and illustrations when training his players. He considers only total victory as an end to all this. But they must have a winning instinct. Oh, absolutely. Oh, they can say, I don't care if we win or not. We don't want them. Because we do want to win, because winning is the epitome of team effort. And we must keep that, and we must inculcate that into our football players. Would you use the word indoctrinate? Yes, yes, I would very much. So many of our liberals are against that word, but I am not. Classic liberals hating indoctrination. There is seven minutes of this documentary on YouTube. It also includes a scene of Hayes yelling at one of his players for missing an assignment in practice before slapping him very hard across the ass. And the clip ends with this, which is going to make Stefan run through a goddamn brick wall. Philanderer. That's a philanderer, a fellow who makes love triflingly. All right, in other words, he just about take on any gal that comes down the street. <laughs> the coach is genuinely concerned yeah, as a teacher about the lack of vocabulary in high school graduates. So all the freshmen volunteer, whether they like it or not, for his own Sunday morning classes on word power. Spell it now. A-P-A-T-H-E-T-I-C. Oh, well, all right. That's a good word. All right. And it comes from another prefix. It goes on like that for a while. Woody Hayes, word freak. Stefan's math is a game. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to make America's vocabulary great, great again. again yeah. Wow. Wow. Linguist. Woody Hayes. Woody Hayes, word freak. We love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.